Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. morning indeed today is the day the lord has made we are rejoicing we are glad in it even if these are days which are like difficult to maybe publicly be joyful like i think that's a challenge right how do i uh, how do i be content in the midst of all circumstances how do i be a person who um is grieving with those who grieve but also rejoicing with those who rejoice like today will you know people will have to go to birthday parties today like right you have to go like right you're going to go and do things that celebrate life you're going babies are going to be born we're we're going to go and celebrate life today even in the midst of a culture that is grieving deeply challenged uh greatly and in conflict with itself at so many levels at so many levels So let me start by saying, have you already been in the Word of God today? And if you have not been in the Word of God, let me challenge you to get into the Word of God before you get into anything else. We need the Word of God needs to be in us in order that when when we are squeezed, which we will be, when we are squeezed, when the pressure comes today, uh, what comes out of us will be the Word of God. Now, the only way that that's going to happen, like you think about a sponge, right? It, when I squeeze a sponge, what comes out is whatever got sucked up into it that it's been uh, soaking in, whatever it's been saturated saturated with. So if we have not been soaking in the Word of God, then when the pressures come, and they will, when we get squeezed, and we will, what's going to come out of us? Well, if we have been saturating our lives with the Word of God, then what comes out of us will be the Word of God. Uh, if we have been Uh, soaking in the Spirit, then what comes out of us is going to be uh, aligned with the Spirit. Trust me when I tell you, if you've been soaking in the culture, then what's going to come out of you is not going to be pretty, right? It's going to be nasty. It's going to be, well, it's, yeah. So if you haven't yet been in the Word of God today, let me just really encourage you to get into the Word. So where in the Word are you is a question I like to ask. I am today focused on a verse of Scripture that we uh, studied yesterday at uh, at the church where I gather with fellow believers on Sunday morning to exalt the name of God and to glorify Him and to come together with fellow believers to do that. And so we were um, immersed in studying this one verse from Acts chapter 2. It's verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So, have you devoted yourself today to the apostles' teaching? That means the Word of God. Um, And and have you done it together with fellow believers? So, this is not just about an affirmation of individual uh, Christian experience. This is an affirmation of what happens in the life of the church, where we gather together with fellow believers and and what we do when we're together. Is this who we are? Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are we devoted to scripture study? And are we devoted 
to fellowship with other believers? Are we devoted to the breaking of bread? And we talk about that. We're not just talking about like, you know, do we share meals with other people? We're actually talking about the table fellowship of the people of God, where Christ is made known to others in the way we break bread together as Christians. That, that revelation that takes place when Jesus breaks the bread with the, with the guys on the walk to Emmaus, after the walk to Emmaus, in Emmaus, where their eyes, the eyes of their hearts are opened to who Jesus is when he breaks the bread with them. And to the prayers. Are we devoted to the prayers? And we talk about the prayers. We're not just talking about praying in our own private prayer closets. We're talking about the prayers that we pray together as the people of God. In the presence of one another and in the presence of God, do we pray? Do we pray with other people publicly, shamelessly, joyfully, with great expectation and hope and faith? So that's where I am in the Word today. Where are you in the Word today? Let me know. You can always text me at 877-933-2484. Love to hear from you. Hey, next up, Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to um, really dig deeply into the conversation about um, not just mass shootings, but the hate uh, in the heart that provokes it and the all of the factors that, that weigh into this. So that conversation is up next with Dr. Linda Mental here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Linda Mental. You can, well, you can find her lots of places. You can find her right here on the Dr. Linda Mental Show on Saturdays. You can find her online. I just type in Dr. Linda Mental and she pops up. So uh, is that the best place to find you online? Um, Dr. Linda is at drlindamental.com. It is. That's my website. And you can just do what you did with Google. And, you know, we can people can listen to the podcast from our faith radio show on the weekend anytime. They can go and they can listen to it on iTunes or come to your website and listen to it as well. So we've got lots of great things related to relationships and mental health and even some of the things we're talking about today. So let's start with um, mass shootings. Your very first book was Kids Killing Kids following the Columbine um, event. And um, although there may be some things about that uh, that particular book that, you know, we now think of as, hey, that was a, that's a piece of history. But the things that you lift up in that book have not changed in terms of um, the characteristics of of the kind of pain that go into producing a person who would do such a thing. So can you talk, uh, can you just talk about, I mean, you use the word multifactorial. That's a big yeah. fancy word. All yeah. of the, all of the things that contribute to this, it's not just one thing, one thing. It's not, it's not. I'm sure you've been talking about that. There's not a single factor. And I think the frustration in a lot of American, American minds, when they hear all these debates and, you know, right away people jump to guns and mental health and all these things is that it's a lot more complicated in some ways Carmen, but on the other side, when you start with a very specific premise that if you do believe that people are born into sin and that they are capable of evil, that there's evil in their hearts, you know, when you, when our culture has changed that message to a secular humanistic message that people are good and they'll strive for good, 
This is a game changer in my mind because it takes away the need for God in our lives, for a moral compass. And when you raise a child, when a person is is raised in a godless kind of situation where they don't have that moral compass and they begin to do things and they begin to develop conduct disorders or they grow up into what we would call maybe antisocial personality disorder, someone that has that where they have no empathy and they're narcissistic and they feel entitled and they have pain and then they they decide I'm going to have power and I'm going to get at people through vengeance or through some kind of hate message. That's individual pain. And then that is in the context of maybe family, a family pain where there's a lot of adverse childhood experiences where people, you know, are dealing, kids are dealing with divorce and they're dealing with trauma and they're dealing with bullying and they're dealing with you know, abuse and all kinds of things that can happen in families that are not, again, held together in the most functional ways. And then you put that that child, that family into a culture that is somewhat disconnecting today. It's isolating. A lot of people feel disenfranchised. Um, you, they're immersed a lot of times in violence in the culture, whether it's through video games or social media. We're desensitized to violence because we see it 24-7 through media. And then you start thinking about the national picture, which I'm sure you've had conversations about in which God has been taken out of the schools. We have abortion and assault on the sanctity of life, hate, disrespect for law and order. I mean, all of these things impact way a person thinks and behaves. Okay, so I think that one of the things you're helping us see is that it's not simple. No. And and yet we live in this soundbite culture where, you know, people would like to pin responsibility for this on something or at least on some ideology or if they can on someone. Uh, you know, and, and this is the can we talk a little bit about blame casting and our our kind of like simple desire to reduce things down to that which is simple because then we can make sense of it. Now, we, you and I have to take a quick break, but I'm hoping that we can. Um, can we talk a little bit about that when we come back from the break? Absolutely. Absolutely. OK, terrific. Terrific. So Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to continue this conversation in just a minute. <laughs> Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Linda Mental. You can find her at drlindamental.com. She's got all the links there that you want and need related to what she's up to. Um, okay, so uh, Dr. Linda, let's return to this conversation about the provocation not only to um, to do violence, but then our our reaction to it and how we want to find something to blame. What's going on in me when I want to find something or someone um, that I can pin with the, you know, with the responsibility. Yeah, typically that comes out of uh, a, a need to have some control in the situation. When you're in a situation like hearing about all these mass shootings, you feel very out of control. I mean, lots of us go to Walmart. You know, some of us go to uh, movies where we've had shootings happen. All of these day-to-day activities that feel somewhat out of our control. We feel helpless. We can't control what's going to happen. We can't control other people. And when that happens, we just tend to want to 
find something to say, this is the reason, this is the cause, just fix this and then everything will be fine. And we, we know that the human condition is just not that simple. And then you put that, Carmen, I think in a, in a culture where we want a quick fix to everything. I mean, we want to take a pill just to feel better. You know, we want to have a quick weight loss diet to lose weight. We want to, you know, move to the top really quickly. I heard a millennial say the other day, you know, I went for a job interview and the guy told me it would probably be eight years to work my way into a position I wanted. Forget that. I'm not going to do that. You know, so this idea of perseverance and patience and staying with things and working through difficult, tolerating distress. I can tell you that in the field of mental health, one of the huge changes that I've seen over the years is this inability in recent years for people to tolerate distress. And I think it has to do with the fact that we can medicate in so many ways. We can shop our way past a bad feeling. We can, you know, immerse ourselves in media. We can drink. We can take a drug. We can, you know, opt out in so many ways rather than learning how to stay focused, feel the pain, but work through the pain and then work through solutions. And I love your segment that I hear every once in a while before I come on about challenging people to be in the word because the word challenges us to be in difficult circumstances, to see the world as it is. I mean, I'm in Philippians and I'm looking at Paul in prison who's encouraging the church, hey, all of this stuff is going around. Stay sound in your doctrine. Get your eyes fixed on the eternal God, and you can be joyful and peace and content wherever you are. And he's coming from a very difficult place in prison when he's telling us all of this. So I think one of the problems is we just want a simple solution. We want to medicate our way out of things, and we don't want to face the difficulty that really is the world that we live in, which is quite challenging. Okay, so that's a really good pivot to this next conversation that that you and I um, uh, want to have, and that is about mental or spiritual health. Um, mm-hmm. I shared a segment with you from CNN's Anderson Cooper, where he's just like openly confronting uh, Democratic candidate Marion Williamson um, on the topic of mental or spiritual health, and she says some things that obviously uh, he does not agree with. You have a post on your website, which again, it's drlindamental.com. And you have a post there. It's asking the question, do faith and antidepressant medication mix? Let's talk about that. Do faith and antidepressant medication mix? Yeah, I think you can you can have both present. Now, you know, again, these conversations, what I appreciated about Marianne Williamson is, you know, her frustration with how little sound bites of what you say get taken out of context. And then right. doctrine is, you know, created around that. And I think, again, this is a complicated situation. There are multiple reasons for depression. There are, you know, medical reasons, side effects of medications. There are life circumstances. There are, you know, biochemical reactions. There are all kinds of things. So we have to be very careful not to judge somebody when they're really struggling with that dark place of the soul that she referenced. Um, so I think it's 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 tough to just say there's one thing, one way to do things. I also, I, I did a show on Faith Radio about medications and mental health, and we talked about some new huge studies that show that antidepressants are not that effective for a number of people and that there are risk benefits to taking them. And you always have to weigh the risk benefits and ask your doctor about that. That said, 
there are times when those help people dramatically. And there are many patients that I have had that this has helped them get out of that dark place. They've been able to revive their spiritual life because their mood has improved. I think one of the things he was challenging her on in that interview was about the fact that, you know, she was saying that it elevate, what did she say, but numbs the mood or something. Mm-hmm, not the function of antidepressants. That's not what she meant. You know, an antidepressant, the the hope of that is that it will bring you out of that really dark place and to a place where you can be a little bit more hopeful and you can, you know, be more open to the kind of help that you need, including your spiritual help and your spiritual life. And my position on medications is very similar to a medical position where, you know, we know with diabetes that it's, there's a problem. And if you take insulin, it helps the problem. So a lot of times for people, antidepressants do help them, but there also are talk therapies. There's the spiritual health of a person that sometimes is the cause of a depression, not always. So again, we can't judge. And the, the the thing that has to happen is someone who's trained in not only maybe medicine, but also in mental health needs to look at the root causes of someone's depression. And there were times when I recommended antidepressants. There were times when I didn't recommend them. And I said, there's a different, there's something different at work here that needs to be dealt with. You deal with that. And I'm going to guarantee you that depression will lift. Wait, can I ask you, uh, just, this might seem like an out-of-the-blue question, and it may or may not seem related to this, but it's definitional. So I'm seeing the words behavioral health in the headlines a lot. Yeah. I don't think I know what that means. Yeah, it just, I'm actually the chair of behavioral health in my position. So oh, well, see, then I don't know what that means. Okay. So it encompasses mental health. So it's the behavioral part of how people, you know, are. So it's looking at how do people behave? How is that influenced by body, mind, and spirit? And so we're looking at the behavioral health. You know, it encompasses everything from the way we do nutrition and exercise, lifestyle to how we think, how we feel, emotional health. And in the place that I work, which is a very um, body, mind, and spirit, also our spiritual health. So it can be holistic, but it is often um, talked about in terms of how people behave and how they react to different things. So I hope that helps okay. a little bit. Yeah, it, that helps a lot. And maybe we just need to spend a segment or two in the upcoming weeks talking about that. I also want to spend some time talking with you um, about suicide. I'm just reading just what feel like an overwhelming number of headlines related to that. And you know, and increasingly, you know, have people in my own life who that's the funeral they're going to. They're going to the funeral of the son of the cousin or they're going to the funeral, right? And um, and so I just, maybe those are some conversations that we can have in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, and they're all, re- they're all somewhat related, Carmen, mm-hmm. because we're talking about people who feel disenfranchised, who feel lonely, who feel isolated, who feel there is no hope. And when you hear all of those things, what do you think? You should think the relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the corrective factor. Now we have to do other things to help people. So obviously I've devoted my whole career on also those other things, but fundamentally our hope is in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we cannot ignore 
the spiritual health of ourselves, of our families, of a nation in this conversation of helping people get reconnected, get in community, get the support, get the help that they need. The church should play a vital role in all of that. The church should be the place where mental health is promoted in such a way that people are busting down the doors to say, I want this holistic approach. And I know that the gospel is one of the centerpieces of all of that, the foundational piece. Oh, amen. That's a good, uh, that's a good conclusion to our conversation today, but, um, but a conversation that's ongoing. Dr. Linda Mental, thank you so much for joining us again today. You guys can find her at drlindamental.com and right here on the Dr. Linda Mental Show on Saturdays. We'll be right back. We're going to turn our attention in just a minute to headlines around the globe. Uh, And so hopefully you are aware or maybe you are not aware that the United States of America has withdrawn from the historic INF Treaty with Russia and that the president um, has said that any new pact should include China. Talking about, um, well, the reality of uh, a second Cold War, not with Russia, but or not with Russia alone, but also with China. That gets into the tariff conversation. Then we're going to pivot uh, also to headlines out of the Middle East. You've probably noted the death of bin Laden's son, as well as a U.S. agreement with the Taliban. And we've got ongoing in the ninth week, ninth week protests in Hong Kong. It looks like China is about to send in its army. That is potentially really devastating. I'm going to talk about all of those things with Dr. David Aikman. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As a parent, how do you know exactly the right time to extend grace? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I recently worked with a teen who rarely received grace at home. He spewed anger on everyone and everything around him, including the side of my van. But instead of having him arrested for bashing my vehicle with a baseball bat, I told him that he was forgiven, that he wouldn't be arrested, and that we were going to work things out differently from now on. As we talked, I saw tears come to his eyes. He had never experienced this kind of forgiveness and giving him grace at just the right moment went a long way to change the direction he was headed. Remember, giving grace is most often needed the moment when it's least deserved. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. My name is Bond, James Bond. So returning for a conversation today, Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Um, Dr. Aikman, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. It's nice to be on the program again. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, We're going to turn our attention first to Hong Kong. Uh, For folks who have not read the headlines this morning, we, uh, we now have travel disruptions. We have... The uh, the city's largest air carrier um, having canceled flights and recommending that people not travel uh, in any non-essential way. We obviously have the Department of Tourism saying everything is fine, but we got a huge day of protests, people striking across uh, seven districts of Hong Kong. It is wide ranging. Uh, we've got people, stri- teachers are on strike, aviation workers, finance employees, civil servants, major sectors of the Asian, Asian financial hub of Hong Kong. Um, uh, plan to screech to a halt today. There are riot police in the streets. They have fired tear gas in five different locations. Clashes continue. 
Um, and young people in particular who do not who do not identify as Chinese, they identify as Hong Kongers. Um, they they really see this as um, as as almost like a last attempt, right, to make their concerns known that they are pro democracy and they are not pro Chinese. I need you to speak into this today because both you and I have um, have a rising level of concern related to Hong Kong. Well, that's right. I mean, what started off as a protest against an extradition bill that looked as though it was going to allow the Chinese Communist government in Beijing to extradite from Hong Kong anybody it disapproved of, this uh, morphed, as it were, into a widespread objection of Hong Kong people or many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong protests against the whole concept of the one country, two system process for Hong Kong, which was breaking down. The, the one country, two system was agreed upon by the British who were departing colonial administrators of Hong Kong and the Chinese government in the 1990s. And it was supposed to allow Hong Kong to keep its basic civic and legal freedoms alive for 50 years. But in fact, starting about three or four years ago, what happened was the Beijing regime put more and more pressure on the Hong Kong government to start um, chipping away at some of the freedoms that the Hong Kong people had gotten used to and were tremendously proud of. And the result has been this explosion of outrage. And I think it's it's morphed from mere protest against extradition to a real objection to the fact that the Chinese government is imposing its own system upon the people of Hong Kong. So we've seen China release um, training videos or some kind of uh, simulation video of what it looks like for the Chinese army to show up and quell protests. Um, there are some who are uh, who are saying, you know, China is taking its lessons from Moscow. Um, what do you make of all that? Well, I don't think Moscow has any particular role in this. The Chinese are quite capable of cracking down on domestic opponents that they don't like without any instructions from Mr. Putin. But I think what is going on is that the Chinese government underestimated how unpopular the whole concept was for Hong Kong people of having their system, the political and civic system in Hong Kong, come under the control of the Communist Party. Because everybody in Hong Kong knows that in China, there is absolutely no rule of law. It's just banditry by local official thugs who just want to get their way. And so Hong Kong people really objected to that and have shown their, their um, antagonism ever since. So, David, um, let's let's make the connection that um, – well, this is going to pivot subjects here. Can we pivot our subject now to the U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty with Russia? Um, and the reason right. that I, I want to bring it up at this point is uh, the president of the United States has said that any any new pact should include China. So that's – you know, there's an, 
There's an odd connection for me um, here, but it seems to be that China is the concerned rising threat in terms of, um, at least in terms of U.S. geopolitics. Yes, it's very interesting because uh, the United States and Russia are the two major nuclear superpowers in the world. But China has emerged as a rising superpower with its own strong nuclear program. And I think uh, President Trump's estimate is that China has to be now put in the context of relations between the two hitherto existing superpowers to make sure that China doesn't exceed what the what the uh, constraints are agreed to between Russia and the United States. Whether the Chinese will agree to be involved, I think, is up in the air. I, I doubt it at this point. Okay, David, let's you and I take a quick break, and then... Um... I don't know. I'm scrolling down. You and I have such a long list of things to talk about. Could we pivot maybe to the Middle East and talk about um, things that are going on there? The U.S. now has an agreement with the Taliban, which I got to tell you is just a strange headline to even read. Yes, of course. Okay, we'll talk about that up next with Dr. David Aikman. Uh, We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Dr. David Aikman. So uh, let me just confess that when I read a headline that says that the United States has reached an agreement with the Taliban uh, in regards to Afghanistan, I I have to I got to admit, that's not a um, that's not a headline that um, in the very distant past I would have found quite extraordinary just on the face of it. So give us a um, give us a sense of what's happening, um, what's happening here and the pivot that, you know, this is a, this seems to me to be a real pivot in terms of our approach. Well, it is, because one of the things President Trump campaigned on before he was president in 2016 was that he wanted to get America out of the expensive wars, expensive in terms of human life and expensive in terms of expense, that the United States had been involved in Iraq um, and Afghanistan and other locations in the Middle East. And he wanted to pivot away from that. So the the United States had a commitment to remain in Afghanistan, committed to the Afghan government to be a sort of policeman of the development of political institutions. But it was unable to do this considering the fact that the Taliban was the one element in Afghanistan that refused to play ball. Uh, They absolutely demanded that they had to be considered a future player in the future of Afghanistan. So essentially the United States has agreed to do this because otherwise the alternative would be for American troops and other forces to remain in the country indefinitely. And President Trump certainly doesn't want to see that, nor do most Americans for that matter. So I think that when we're talking about Afghanistan, it's important for, you know, just people to kind of be reminded 
um, this is a part of the world where conflict is actually now generational. Um, this is a this is a place where there have been foreign troops and foreign forces for a very very long time. Yes, it goes back to the 1840s when the British Empire, that was then controlling India, sent the first of two disastrous expeditions into Afghanistan. In I think the first Afghan war, there was only one British survivor from the entire British military unit that went into the country. And everybody has suffered at the hands of the Afghans. Most recently, of course, the Russians, who really were forced to withdraw from Afghanistan back in 1986 after their attempt to control the country had been effectively resisted, not at that time by the Taliban, but by domestic anti-communist resistance. But then the Taliban took over in the 1990s, and that introduced a completely new element into the struggle with religious ideology playing a major role in addition to nationalist aspirations. So that changed the situation dramatically. You know, David, one of the things I appreciate in our conversations is that you um, you have a you have a much longer perspective uh, in terms of uh, the things that we're talking about. Many of us, you know, we only know the history uh, that has occurred during the time when we've been paying attention, which may have been 20 minutes and it may be as many as 20 years, but most people not any longer than that. And you've been paying attention to what's happening around the world and the differences in the way that people think about things and therefore the way they approach things. And so, you know, we when we go from uh, Asia, let's say issues in Hong Kong or China, and then we go to the Middle East, uh, you know, specifically now Afghanistan, um, and then we pivot toward conversations that are related, let's say, to the United States of America or Great Britain. We're we're really talking about very very different ways of looking at the world and very different ways of looking at relationships and therefore very different approaches to the value of human life, um, war, uh, you know, the quelling a protest. Like the all of these are affected by the way people actually see the world, uh, and so. Um, I just I just wonder if you have any reflections on that this morning. Just we we tend to imagine that people see the world the way we see the world. And that's just not true. Yeah, that's true. That's been the foundational mistake of many Americans in determining what's going on around the world. We naively think that everybody else wants to see the same good things for themselves, their family and their society as we do. But that's just not the case. And when the United States faces a particularly virulent opponent who has an ideology that is strictly militaristic or totalitarian, we really don't quite know how to respond. So worldview is the most important thing to figure out of any country that we are dealing with as the United States in international affairs. All right. Give us an update on um, I mean, I know we're not going to know anything final until the end of October, but uh, with the new prime minister, what do we know about any efforts at a new Brexit deal? 
Well, that's, it's a very interesting question because particularly now a week uh, or 10 days after Boris Johnson became prime minister, uh, you now have a majority of only one in the English parliament, the British parliament. And so it, technically the regime could be voted out of office uh, quite easily if any if the opposition could gather together a coalition of opponents. And the complication in Britain is that the political and media establishment, if you like, the fake news plus the fake politicians, are determinately pro-Remain. They want to do everything to keep the UK in the EU. And that's a complete contradiction, of course, of the referendum result in 2016, when 48% of the British people voted to leave the EU. So what Boris Johnson has come up with is a determination to push through a leave policy, even if there is no deal on the terms of the UK leaving. And that's a high-risk policy in economic terms. But he believes unless he puts that on the table as an alternative to the EU, then he won't get any deal at all. David, as always, we appreciate um, your insight, your perspective, uh, and the help that you offer us in interpreting the news of the day from a Christian perspective. So thank you uh, very much, Dr. David Aikman. Well, thank you very much, Carmen. I enjoy being on the program. Well, we enjoy having you. All right, friends, we've got to take a quick break, then we'll be right back. Okay, so on the topic of prayer, which is certainly uh, where we spent much of uh, the first half of the program today, I also want to respond to some of you who have reached out to ask about Matthew. Um, So I really only have good news to report, which is really exciting and wonderful. Um, He's doing great. Thank you for all of those of you who prayed for him last week. Matthew's my uh, 13-year-old stepson, and he had uh, cranial surgery to deal with uh, symptoms related to his Apert's syndrome. Uh, He had that surgery on Tuesday. Now, the last time we had this kind of surgery, we were in the pediatric ICU for a couple of weeks. Uh, This time, uh, Matthew came home on Friday. So we were in the pediatric ICU for less than 24 hours and then, you know, in a regular room. And by Friday, they couldn't see any reason to keep him in the hospital anymore. So he's doing great, really, really healthy. None of that uh, lingering fog that you get from anesthesia sometimes. And he's had no pain whatsoever. So he's taken no pain meds. Uh, It's really, really extraordinary and nothing short of miraculous. So thanks be to God. Total praise, total praise in that area. Um, Earl is asking us to pray this morning for a spirit of unity, that we would uh, be people who are unifiers and not dividers. Absolutely, Earl, we are praying with you, um, along with you, that uh, members of uh, the government, including the president, would be unifiers and not dividers. I think that's a Uh, An excellent prayer to be calling us all into today. Anne is uh, a teacher. She works in the public school and is uh, thanks us for our prayers for teachers. Teachers can never get enough prayer, she says. So let's be mindful of that today. Let's be mindful of praying for 
everybody involved in the education system. Let's be praying for the, the people that drive the buses uh, in, in addition to teachers in classrooms and administrators and coaches and everybody else. All right, uh, let's be calling one another to a time of prayer. Let's be exalting Jesus Christ. Let's be out there advocating for peace. Let's be makers of peace and keepers of peace and purveyors of peace as people who are subjects of the one who is the Prince of Peace, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.